Hi everyone, I'm Anya Parampil and you're watching Red Lines. My guest today is Danny Haifong, an editor and contributor at the Black Agenda Report. Welcome to Red Lines, Danny. Thanks for having me back on, Anya. Your recent piece is titled American Left Silence on China Helps Lay Foundation for the U.S.'s new Cold War. You argue, quote, the American left has helped lay the ideological foundation for the U.S.'s new Cold War against China. U.S. economic, political, and military warfare toward the second largest economy in the world would not be possible without an intense propaganda campaign centered on the dehumanization of the Chinese people. Which outlets do you believe are guilty of participating in this propaganda campaign, which you argue has essentially aligned them with the State Department? Well, it's the typical uh, sort of media outlets that claim themselves to be independent and say that they are on the left when it comes to journalism and all issues, economic, political, military and uh, the you know these outlets range from Jacobin magazine, which is basically the voice of the Democratic Socialists of America. Uh, we have Democracy Now, which is a repeated offender, just like Jacobin in repeating State Department talking points. We saw it with Syria. I know that Gray Zone has covered this when it comes to the U.S. invasion in Syria and its proxy war there. But the same goes for basically any country that the United States is waging both a cold war or a hot war against. It's usually countries that have systems of governance, economic and political, that run counter to the U.S.'s imperial plans in the region in question. So China right now is sort of the largest enemy quote unquote, for the United States to be targeting. And we've seen how the Trump administration has ramped up its attacks on China in Jacobin, Democracy Now!, The Nation. These outlets have basically uh, called for solidarity with so-called some pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong. And they've also consistently attacked the government of China as being authoritarian, as being imperialist, sort of equating China with the United States. And in many instances, since these outlets generally don't critique U.S. foreign policy, and when they do, um, it's only in certain circumstances, basically make China out to be even a larger uh, problem than the United States itself, which, as uh, I'm sure many of your viewers on Gray Zone knows, is completely a farce since the U.S. is the imperial hegemon of the world. And much of the planet understands that. Yeah, you say, quote, the American left is, for the most part, an American exceptionalist left, a Democratic Party, a Democratic Party oriented left, <clears throat> oriented left, and a white liberal left. What do you mean by that? Well, when we look at the outlets in question, Democracy Now!, Jacobin, even The Nation, we know that Basically, the editorial standards, those who write the editorial standards for these outlets, basically reside from a certain section of the left in the United States, which is the white left. And the white left historically has been a liberal left. It's been one that is 
completely indebted to defending American patriotism and the U.S. nation state at all costs, even when they tend to critique how the United States treats uh, some sections of its own citizens, uh, for example, by calling out some of the worst excesses of capitalism. That's what Jacobin does um, uh, very well in some instances. But when it comes to foreign policy and when it comes to waging a, a campaign for solidarity with people around the world, there are some so many notable examples where basically the nations that are under the most duress from U.S. imperialism are completely left out of this equation. This includes Venezuela. There has been very little activity in the white liberal left media around solidarity with Venezuela. Uh, but now we have an, a situation where China is the second largest economy in GDP terms, the largest in terms of purchasing power parity terms, and it also is the most globalized country in many ways in the world where its connections to both uh, the European and imperialist orbit economically as well as the global south run very deep. And so a, uh, a war that the United States is waging, this new Cold War, is dangerous in so many regards when we just think about how China is very connected to the world economy and how China is also a large military power that does have the ability to defend itself, unlike so many countries that have fallen to U.S. regime change plans and operations. And we just know that uh, with the State Department's on a tear against China right now, that uh, the vulnerabilities of the United States and of the left movement are being placed right on display for everyone to see because, I mean, just look at how China is being demonized and the left, most of the left in the United States is going right along with it. I've received many emails where people have issues with what I say about China and Xinjiang, China and Hong Kong. And they ask me, how could you say there's no proof? How could you say there's no evidence? How could you say that China is worth defending? And I think that just shows how successful this universal consensus in the United States around anti-China sentiment really has been. It really is universal, Danny. I noticed that during the years of Russiagate, there were individuals on both the left and right who were willing to question the mainstream narrative about U.S.-Russia relations and sound the alarm bell over the potential dangers of a new Cold War with Russia. That hasn't been the case with China. I'm wondering why you think that is. I truly do believe it's anti-communism that makes this such a hot, and controversial issue. It's so difficult to defend China here in the United States because unlike Russia, where the United States had a heavy hand in uh, undermining and ultimately uh, helping to facilitate the dissolution of the Soviet Union, China did not dissolve after the fall of the Soviet Union. Actually, in many ways, China has strengthened and its socialist system, regardless of what people may think of it, has actually expanded, has actually grown and actually, actually has become more successful, actually far more successful than it was in the 1990s even. And that is a consensus position in China, uh, given how much progress has been made around uh, questions and issues like anti-poverty relief and uh, economic development, as well as just the standard of living that people 
possess right now in China, the vast majority of people possess in China, has just improved mightily in the last 30 years. So I think the biggest issue for many people in the United States is that one, China is a country that is socialist and that is currently led by the Communist Party of China, which is different from Russia, which is not led by a Communist Party at this moment. And two, China is also a country with centuries-long history with the United States and West, and the West, which is characterized by semi-colonialism, racism. I mean, the, this, the United States didn't start interacting with China in 1949. I talk about in my article how the United States saw China as an open door, saw it as an opium, opium field, saw China in the mid-19th century as an opportunity to expand its imperial designs as they were just developing um, as a way to dominate uh, the region and, and in effect the world. So the United States has long demonized people of Southeast Asia, people of the Asia Pacific as quote unquote others and as people who are ultimately not people at all. And I think that that racist ideology, which is so endemic here in the United States, is also to blame. So you have this twin sort of a double-edged sword of anti-communism and racism, which often go hand in hand and have, have always gone hand in hand. But when you have a country like China, where this is no longer 1949 and this is no longer the 1850s, China is a country that is stable, that is growing, and that does so based upon public ownership of the commanding heights of the economy and does not listen to the diktats of, for example, U.S. sanctions around the world that work with anybody. It's this growing threat of a rising power like China, which is different, and China says this all the time, it's uh, official, uh, it's foreign ministry, the Communist Party of China, um, its media all, says all the time that China is different from the United States, and can the United States tolerate that? The answer right now is no, and the left is showing that it completely agrees with the U.S. establishment on that question. I think another reason is something you touched on, which is that unlike even the Soviet Union back in the days of the Cold War or Russia today, China actually poses an economic challenge to the United States. It's, it's brought forward an alternative model of of international development and it's on track to surpass the United States as the world's largest economy that was never a fear when it came to Russia or the Soviet Union the way that that China really threatens the interests of US empire Danny what are the implications of this bipartisan support for a new Cold War with China in what ways has the United States escalated tensions with China in recent months I mean there are so many examples and cases the implications are far-reaching for all of them. Whether we're talking about the increased so-called tech war with China, where the United States is basically abdicating any sort of ability to compete with China in this realm and is now really reverting to a very backwards policy of trying to ban uh, corporations like Huawei, which has almost half of all 5G technology, whether it's trying to ban the WeChat app in the United States, which basically negates the Chinese market altogether if that were to occur because 
there isn't a person from China or has connections with China that's going to buy a phone that cannot uh, obtain WeChat on it because that is the most popular form of communication over social media there. And then whether we're talking about TikTok, uh, the threat to ban TikTok as well, which is part of that WeChat executive order. Uh, and then we can just go down the line in terms of the sanctions that are relatively mild in terms of their economic impact, but really send an ideological message around uh, issues like Xinjiang and Hong Kong. We've seen a plethora of bills being shoved through Congress and signed by the president to basically demonize China as a human rights violator and sanction officials, basically sanctioning the entire Communist Party of China, which is 90 plus million people plus all of the connections that people in China have with the Communist Party of China, which could swell to about a quarter to half of the entire population. So we just see a multifaceted attack. We know that the military, and this is something that the left never talks about in the United States, at least the majority of the left, is that the U.S. military has escalated its uh, regime of endless warfare directly against China. We saw on July 3rd the sending of two... Uh, uh, aircraft carriers to the South China Sea, and that there are thousands of operations that occur every year on the South China Sea. And this has been something that's been happening since the Obama administration, since at least 2012, during the declaration of the pivot to Asia policy. That continued under Trump, and now Trump is taking it to another level, threatening to do things like uh, renew nuclear tests in that region. And Basically, the United States' policy with China militarily, and this has increased over the uh, last few months as well, is to fortify allies of the United States, right? Whether it's India, whether it's Japan, whether it's South Korea, whether we're talking about Guam, whether we're talking about Malaysia. Uh, the U.S. has military bases, has personnel in the hundreds of thousands, um, it, you know, added up altogether between these countries. And... Basically, the policy is surround China because the United States can't economically compete. But this is very dangerous. All of this is very dangerous, whether it's attacking China economically, attacking it militarily, attacking it politically by trying to delegitimize the leadership of the Communist Party. All of this sours relations between the U.S. and China and also polarizes the world situation to an effect where there could be a confrontation between the U.S. and China or China and one of the U.S.'s allies, which leads to needless death and leads to needless um, uh, you know, issues and troubles diplomatically. And when we're talking about the economic part of this, is that the United States is really threatening, as it already is in a Great Depression, to just further the pain worldwide by trying to isolate China and thereby isolating basically the one country that the global south has in the world to rely upon when it comes to trade on the basis of cooperation and on the basis of really trying to make progress around issues like underdevelopment. That, I think, is also a consequence of this, is that now the United States is showing teeth that is trying that basically pushes countries to make a decision now about their relations with China. I don't think it's going to work. I think China has a lot of leverage economically. The United States doesn't really have anything to offer in this realm. 
and that's why it's making such brash moves. But the overall effect is to create a very dangerous, very hostile, very racist uh, environment that uh, threatens to basically bring hold the world back from being able to address issues like climate change, racism, poverty, war. All of these issues that the United States is basically in the vanguard of can't be addressed when the U.S. is trying to undermine uh, the one of the largest countries in the world that ha that will be a player in trying to resolve them. Danny, I thought it would be fun to do a sort of rapid fire round of questions since we're focused on how the left plays into this new Cold War, giving you the chance to respond to some common talking points I hear people who consider themselves left wing make when it comes to China. The first one being and I, I just want to point out, you've actually been to China, unlike a lot of people who, I think, discuss China online. But one of the most common points we hear is that China is a capitalist country. What's your response to that? My response is that I think that many people who, have, who say this is that is, they're not considering the fact that the Communist Manifesto itself and much of the doctrine of Marxism and uh, political economy, Marxist political economy, basically outlines socialism as uh, a system where ownership of the means of production is publicly, com publicly controlled at the commanding heights of the economy. So a lot of people think that because there's private capital in China, that somehow that means that China isn't socialist. But when you actually look at, for example, China's owner, you know, in terms of what is really driving China's economic development, it's putting private uh, capital uh, in control of consumer goods while the commanding heights of the economy, which really have to do with driving the national sort of income and the need that people have for things like healthcare, housing, food, those are in control of the state. And so the Communist Manifesto outlines this very well. If, if people read it, there's actually 10 points that uh, Karl Marx makes and Engels makes in defining what a socialist country would look like. And China ticks off all the boxes, whether we're talking about a progressive tax system, whether we're talking about uh, public control of the commanding heights of the economy in the hands of the state, whether we're talking about how uh, China is using the principle of uh, to each according to his labor, that is really what socialism is. It's a transition from capitalism uh, to communism. It's a transition period. And that's where China sees itself as being in. And so when you look at how China operates, right, the Communist Party of China is still in leadership. And the growth of, for example, income inequality in China is a huge issue that they totally acknowledge and recognize. However, on the other hand, China decided, you know, 40 plus years ago, that one of the most important things to do in a socialist economy is to ensure that people are not hungry, that people have the opportunity to live a life that is free from the worst excesses of underdevelopment and poverty. And capitalism and capital 
accumulation is needed in some respects to achieve that. Many socialist countries like Cuba have also acknowledged this. That's why there has been integration of private capital there in the consumer goods industry as well. Because while you need to protect uh, the country from finance capital, uh, from capitalist control over sectors like energy, for example, that's what China does. You also need to ensure that people's needs are met and that not only are people's needs met, but the standard of living also rises. That's one thing that the Soviet Union had a hard time achieving in such a hostile capitalist and imperialist world was how do you not, how do you not allow the economy to stagnate? And that also allows for ideology and commitment to socialism to stagnate. China has taken up an approach of we're going to make sure that the country is prosperous and then we're going to address the issues of poverty, of hunger, of homelessness, of uh, illiteracy, for example. All of these issues are still on the agenda and still a part of a central plan. So China still goes uh, in terms of its political direction by a central plan and in effect capitalism, the idea that someone like Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or, um, you know, certain corporations like Wells Fargo or Goldman Sachs, uh, they don't control the economy or the society of China. China, the central government in China, controls the uh, direction and the destiny of China. And I think that's really what makes it a socialist country, its ability to uh, bring together the state-owned industries to bring together the mass organizations to chart a course for society that's independent of the will of finance capital, but not independent of the will of the global market, because in effect, China has to operate within a global market uh, that has both socialist, but mainly capitalist forms of governance and economic activity. So China really is balancing between the two. And I think if we look at just the progress that China has made, as well as how China addressed COVID-19, for example, and how China has really shown how if you can unify so many different kinds of peoples together, that's one thing China never gets credit for. It's, they call it a civilization in China. They don't even call it a country because there's over 50 ethnic groups there. And they're based. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that brings me to my next point, which is that China represses minorities and is carrying out a genocide against Uyghur Muslims. Yes, that is the State Department talking point. That is the talking point of outlets like the Coda story, which I know have attacked the gray zone. Uh, and they focus a lot of their attention on the innuendo about Uyghurs in China. I wrote a piece recently about how ESPN jumped in on the mix. And the person who wrote it, at least one of the co-authors, Steve Fainaru, has actually done decent journalism, has gone to Iraq, has embedded himself with military contractors and reported about their atrocities there. But when it comes to Xinjiang and it comes to this issue of minor ethnic minorities in China, particularly the Uyghurs, the demonization campaign is very political. It's all about demonizing the system that exists in China, socialism with Chinese characteristics, as one that is completely committed to dehumanizing, ironically, dehumanizing ethnic minorities, which the United States knows so much about. But when you look at how China has 
focused its anti-poverty campaign actually on ethnic minorities in particular, actually on regions of the country that are predominantly um, uh, comprised of ethnic minorities, like Nangxi, like Nangxi province, for example, uh, we see that actually China is trying to unite the country uh, while respecting differences uh, re relating to ethnic minorities. That when you go there, and I was there in Urumqi, for example, uh, the capital of Xinjiang province and the Uyghur Autonomous Region, you see that there are mosques everywhere. There is security in these mosques, and the reason for that is because actually the so-called rebels, the so-called uh, you know uh, jihadist fighters that came into China and that had been trained in Xinjiang, for example, along the border regions, targeted mosques as well as sites of uh, terror and and ways to disrupt the country and to cause uh, the the murder of so many. So the reason why there's more security in a place like Xinjiang and a place like Urumqi, for example, is because there has been thousands of terrorist attacks committed over the, a 16-year period between 1990 and 2016. But none of that has meant that people in that region, especially Uyghurs, can't practice Islam, for example, that they can't practice their particular faith because there are many different Muslim ethnic groups like the Hui people, for example, in Xinjiang as well as the rest of the country. And so it is just utterly and simply a lie. I, I talked about how the evidence is always based on very faulty video imagery, which cannot be verified as actually being where um, they say it is, or actually proving what they say they're trying to uh, uh, basically reveal. And we've seen that, for example, a Taiwanese porn video has been used as an example of Uyghur oppression. We've just seen how all of the evidence that supposedly uh, is out there for us to believe that there's this repression in Xinjiang is faulty, to say the least, if not completely fabricated. And so when we have people like Adrian Zenz, a far-right, racist, uh, sexist, Christian fundamentalist who believes in corporal punishment himself, who doesn't believe in gender rights, who doesn't believe in hate crime legislation, as being the leading researcher, quote-unquote, of this campaign to free Uyghurs of oppression, then we really have to question the sources. But more than that is if you've actually been to this region and 24 uh, countries, journalists uh, from around the world have been to Urumqi, they've been to Xinjiang, including Reuters, but Reuters will not report on what they found. Uh, and we should demand that they report on what they found they do not report what what actually is going on there, which is actually a campaign to develop Xinjiang, which is historically one of the least developed parts of China, in order to facilitate the Belt and Road Initiative, which will connect China to Central Asia and to Europe and then to the rest of the world economically through a combination of financial and infrastructure development. And so I, that is really where the United States stands against China, where this Uyghur oppression story has come from. It's come from the fact that there needs to be ethnic strife, there needs to be division sown, and there needs to be a propaganda campaign against China to stop China from 
trying to create a situation of even development and prosperity and growth in that part of the country because that part of the country holds a lot of promise for the future, not just for people in that region in China, but also the rest of the world. Another point we hear a lot is China is authoritarian and no democracy is possible in the country because of Communist Party rule. Yes, and that, that's not a secret that the United States and much of the West believes in any country that has com a Communist Party in leadership is uh, completely antithetical to so-called democracy. And again, this all gets into what the definition of democracy is. American exceptionalism and the United States' establishment that uh, peddles the ideology, of course, defines democracy as whatever they believe it is, which is themselves, their image, their political economy of unrepentant capitalism, as well as the social orders of uh, their allies. We heard Netanyahu, for example, recently call U the UAE uh, a shining example of democracy, even though it's ruled by a monarchy. But in any case, when we think about democracy in China, and, China, and people in China do believe that they are a thriving democracy, there was a recent poll done that showed that actually 73% of people in China believe that their country is a democracy. That really China's definition of democracy is just different because China is a socialist country. It's a country that does not believe that capital should make decisions in the country. And it's a, and it's a democracy that is not predicated just on elections, because I think that is one of the falsities of the U.S.'s American exceptionalist ideology, is that somehow an election makes you a democracy. Well, in China, with China, people in China would say, actually, it's how legitimate your government is in the eyes of the people that makes you a democracy. So China, a lot of people have sympathy and have support for their government because it addresses the burning issue of poverty, its raised standard of living, every single year um, since 1978. Uh, people's wages rise 8 to 10 percent per year, uh, even in bad years. Um, people's ability to work, which is in the constitution of China, the right to work, is respected and upheld, and the government does its uh, utmost to ensure that people have a job, people have a livelihood. So when the concern of ordinary people in China is taken into account. That's what how China s sees a democracy, that there is this relationship between the people and the state that is both consultative in one respect and also participatory in another respect. People in China are part of mass organizations. They're part of the uh, All-China Federation of Trade Unions. They're part of mass organizations. They're part of... Uh, you know, local governance, uh, the volunteer organizations, which were so critical during the pandemic response in Wuhan, for example. So people in China don't define their democracy by how, how able they are to, for example, elect a president like Donald Trump. When I was in China, people said Donald Trump could never be a local village leader here because... He has no legitimacy with people. He's never served anybody. He's never uh, done anything good for anybody but himself. Uh, and the same would go for most, if not all, politicians 
in Washington. And so that's where the difference is. We can vote in people to represent us every four years, and they then uh, are controlled by capitalists, by oligarchs, by corporations, by banks. While in China, people consult with their officials. They have relationships with them. If you enter the Communist Party of China, for example, if you want to be a member, one of the first things you have to do is you have to go to the countryside, you have to go to a mountainous region, you have to go to one of the poorest parts of the country, and you have to serve there for a couple of years. And you have to not only serve there, but you have to show that now, because of your service and your collaboration with that village, with that township, that now you have qualifications, that you've improved the situation there. And so that is the difference between democracy in China and democracy in the United States. In the United States, it's democracy for the rich. In China, it's democracy for the entire country. Some people would argue we have one party rule in the United States as well with, with the illusion of a two party system. China is stealing our intellectual property, Danny. This is a, a funny one because China has actually surpassed the United States in terms of, uh, for example, patents for very valuable things like pharmaceuticals and high-tech uh, software. <clears throat> and so all of these accusations have never been proven. They come right out of the intelligence apparatus mainly. They come out of people like Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, who was in the CIA, a leader in the CIA for many years, and who said that in the CIA you learn how to steal, how to cheat, and how to lie. And so really that accusation just has no basis to it. There is evidence, though, that the CIA has actually been hacking into China, and that was proven by an analysis done by a Chinese security firm of WikiLeaks documents, that uh, Chihu 360, which showed that the CIA for 11 years was actually stealing aviation, energy, and other very valuable data, including consumer data, private data, and using it to undermine China uh, and trying to use it to basically keep tabs on how China is developing, as well as ways that they could potentially undermine its economic growth. So when all the evidence shows that the United States is the biggest purveyor of surveillance and of using its massive surveillance apparatus to steal people's data, spy on world leaders, we really have to question why it's so easy to believe them when it comes to China. And I think much of that has to do with the fact that too many people in the United States, especially on the left, especially in the corporate media, especially even in the so-called progressive media, do not have the capacity to see China as a country of human beings that uh, really is under the assault of the United States and its new Cold War policy. A lot of these companies, U.S. tech companies, also signed agreements with China that if they were going to come into the country and exploit its labor market, that they would have to share some of their technology with China. That's a pretty typical agreement and no one held a gun to the CEOs of these companies and forced them to go into China and tap into that labor market. Danny, the Hong Kong protest movement is left wing. Yes, uh, the Hong Kong protest movement is about as left wing as uh, basically 
the jihadists in Syria are left wing or uh, uh, the uh, coup regime in Bolivia was left wing. The, the Hong Kong pro-democracy movement is mainly foreign funded and it's pretty entertaining sometimes to see the leaders of this movement try to defend itself from these accusations. They usually don't address them at all and they just say that people are demonizing the Hong Kong pro-democracy movement on behalf of Beijing, but they actually won't say that they're not funded by certain organizations. Sometimes they'll admit that they get assistance from these organizations, but that the funding doesn't actually influence them. So I think it's important to recognize that when the National Endowment of Democracy, an organization that was begun basically by the CIA to do the, what the CIA does in the open, when that is the principal source of financing for so many key groups, including the largest trade, uh, uh, the second largest trade union organization comprised mostly of the middle class, the Confederacy of Hong Kong trade unions, when there is this ideology that these protesters uh, resort to and hold so dear that says that we need the UK and the US and gov uh, Governor Chris Patton, the colonial governor, to come back and save Hong Kong from China, then you know where the protesters stand. I mean, we saw with the great work that the Gray Zone did uh, around revealing that the one of the biggest leaders of this movement online, at least, Kong Se-Gon, was a fraud that actually it's an American, a white American man who used to work for Amnesty International, uh, Brian Kern, and that I think really speaks to just how fraudulent that movement always was. That it never had any concrete demands to improve the lives of people in Hong Kong. It always had demands to change governance in Hong Kong, which is ironic because the governance in Hong Kong remains the colonial legislature of the Hong Kong Legislative Council, which was basically something that was inherited by China after the formal end of colonialism in 97. But to this day, China adheres to the basic law of the country, which says one country, two systems. And if anyone goes to Hong Kong and looks around, you'll see that capitalism is pretty alive and well there and that that concession was never violated by China and that the whole basis of the movement was to create strife, to create chaos and to legitimize the U.S.'s built, uh, budding new Cold War against China and to use very anti-mainland Chinese forces that have been cultivated since the advent of semi-colonialism and colonialism there in the mid-19th century as a proxy for U.S. ambitions. And we've just seen how that's led to policies like the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act, uh, to the latest Hong Kong Autonomy Act, all of which just serve U.S. interests that strengthen the U.S.'s sanctions regime in other countries like Iran and DPRK, basically saying if uh, the United States finds out that Hong Kong is being used as a hub to violate those sanctions, that further action can be committed against China. All, all of it is U.S.-based. It's a U.S.-manufactured movement that isn't even supported by most people in Hong Kong. Just a, just a petition alone was signed by 2.9 million people, nearly 40% of the country. A petition, a paper petition 
was signed by the people of Hong Kong saying they support the national security law there. So that shows that a plurality, at least, if not a majority of people, believe that the Hong Kong pro-democracy movement is not about democracy, that it's about undermining the sovereignty of all of China, and that it just hasn't been successful. The same thing, I always think about Libya in this case. It's if the U.S. and NATO did not invade Libya and overthrow the government, the government would be the same. And that's not because the government was so repressive. It's because when you have a situation where you're saying that the public, that people are in support of your coup regime, then why is it that that regime can, needs the support of the biggest imperial power uh, on the land just to exist? And I think not many on the left ask themselves that question. Why is it that these movements were so legitimate that they need the backing of the most powerful and most uh, dangerous forces that have committed so much misery around the world to finance them and to provide them legitimacy. Finally, Danny, one of the most pervasive talking points I hear brought up is that China is colonizing Africa and has aggressive imperialist ambitions. Well, I think that there is a lot of confusion about what imperialism is, what colonialism is, because the United States has never really been in the vanguard of struggling against any of those things. Um, unless we exclude the black movement here in the United States, the black left tradition especially, there really hasn't been a, a massive movement here in the United States against those things, not since the opposition to the Vietnam War, which, to be frank, was really an opposition to the U.S. invasion there, less so a solidarity campaign to the liberation forces. And uh, when that war formally ended, much of the left stopped supporting liberation movements abroad. So I think much of the confusion stems from that. And the camp propaganda campaign comes from the same forces that are telling us that Uyghurs are in concentration camps that they can only get pictures of from the outside. They're the same people that are telling us that pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong who are waving Trump flags and who are canoodling with uh, the Azov Battalion, a neo-fascist group in Ukraine, uh, are somehow worthy of our support. So the same forces in the U.S. establishment across the board, including the left, unfortunately, are telling us that the U.S. is an imperialist in Africa. Well, if you look at how China has done business in Africa, you'll see a, quite a different story. While China does not condemn African countries based on their politics, based on their economic policy, and many countries in Africa have uh, been subject to just brutal international financial plans like structural adjustment programs from the IMF, have been subject to brutal U.S. Western-backed puppet governments, but China does not interfere in the affairs of other countries. So when it does business with Africa, it's not doing business based on what the character of that government is. It's doing business on the basis of China is looking to economically develop and grow. Africa has many resources for that to occur, and also Africa has many needs. And so countries in Africa really do welcome the infrastructure development that China can offer, the techno technological expertise, the potential for things like 5G technology to enter uh, the African continent, 
for electricity itself. Many countries in Africa are so underdeveloped that electricity itself is difficult to come by. A lot of Chinese projects in countries like Senegal, in countries across West Africa, for example, have been about uh, building infrastructure that allows for uh, electricity to reach wide uh, swaths of the countries in question. So when we look at it like that, we have to ask ourselves, well, if imperialism is about underdevelopment, is China facilitating underdevelopment in Africa or is China trying to facilitate mutual agreements of cooperation economically that benefit both sides? And I would say that China is engaged in economic activity, both socialist and capitalist, because let's be honest, uh, China has to operate within the global market and is not going to condemn other countries for not being socialist, for example. So on that basis, it is working uh, on agreements and on infrastructure projects that actually bring the standard of living up and imperialism um, over the last 200 years, for example, has not ever shown a record of doing that. Uh, the quality of life for people in the global south because of imperialism went way down and that's because the imperialist world order is dependent upon the exploitation, the super exploitation of the global south. So unless you can find proof that that is exactly what is happening, that there is a repeat offense being committed by China, then the accusations that China is somehow imperialist power in Africa are just baseless and are just another way to try to deflect from the fact that the U.S. and the West are starting to lose ground on the African continent because of how attractive China is. We know that China's economic investment in Africa now is valued up above $200 billion. The United States, it's barely an eighth of that. It's $39 billion. So we're talking about a complete an utter shift in the world order, and Africa is just one battleground. And no one talks about AFRICOM as much as they talk about China's economic activity in on the continent when AFRICOM, the U.S. African Command, is a literal military structure occupying African countries supposedly by, uh, with their permission to use the continent as a training ground for so-called counter-terror operations. But if you look at their documents, and I'm writing about this right now, you'll see that uh, battling Russia and China's economic rise is really the reason why AFRICOM exists uh, in, uh, on the continent and does so in 53 of the 54 countries. China has even gone so far as to forgive debt belonging that it's issued to African nations, which is something you don't really hear the United States doing unless it's overthrown a country and installed a neoliberal government that's going to go along with some sort of adjustment program. So just that alone, I think, really challenges the whole idea that China is developing Africa or has interest in developing the world with an imperialist character. Danny Haif. Oh, sorry. Uh, well, I just had one thing to add to that, too, is that China does business on Af in Africa and, and does not use debt as a weapon for underdevelopment. That's what exactly you were describing, the IMF, the World Bank. That's what they do. And the United States is at the head of both of those institutions. But China says in its policy of economic development everywhere in terms of how it relates to other countries, but in Africa in particular, that debt is not used as a weapon. Debt exists, but if you look at the percentage of debt uh, among African countries, every one of them you'll see China debt with China is a very small portion 
um, most of the time less than a tenth of the debt that exists um, in, in a particular country. And also, it's, it's like the forgiveness is one thing, but it's also the idea that debt alone does not mean that a country needs to be starved and that a country needs to open up its economy and open up its society to the uh, diktats of the country that's leveraging the debt or the financial institution. That's not how China operates. China operates strictly on the basis of uh, if you can agree upon uh, a certain amount of debt based on the different exchange rates and the values of products, et cetera, and the value of the exchange, then we will cooperate uh, and we will provide the necessary services that you need um, for in exchange for the resources that are so valuable for Chinese industry. Danny Haifong, I really am glad that you came on today to break down some of those myths. I encourage viewers to follow you, your work. Your Twitter handle, I believe, is at Spirit of Ho, H-O, and your column comes out at the Black Agenda Report every Wednesday, so everyone should check it out. Thanks so much, Danny. Thank you so much, Anya.